Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our new series, A Vision for Christmas, today, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Isaiah's Call and the Message of Grace. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I know, I know. I'm starting my study of Isaiah, not at the beginning, but at chapter 6. And that's because, as you know, I'm talking about Isaiah's Christmas. I'm going to be concentrating on those passages in Isaiah that deal most closely with the theme of the incarnation, that is, the coming of the Savior into a lost world in darkness. But starting in chapter 6, it's like starting a book six chapters in, or getting to a movie theater that's been going on for about 15 minutes. Um, you're going to miss something, and you might lean over to the person next to you and say, well, what did I miss? So let me explain what you missed. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 explains what the first five chapters are all about. That passage which opens up the book sets the stage for what we find. So let's read the opening. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And so for the first five chapters of Isaiah, describes the spiritual failure of God's chosen people. They are, says Isaiah, a sinful nation. They keep rebelling against God. At one point, Isaiah even calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet rather than simply rejecting his people, God appeals to them. Come, he says, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And yet in spite of the pleading that comes from their God, their creator, the maker of a covenant, the people of Israel display an amazing lack of responsiveness. The nation has become comfortable with idols. They're also blind to a coming crisis that will soon overwhelm their land. What is to be done with them? In some ways, the early days of Isaiah's ministry are like every day. The great God of heaven demands an accounting of every single human being. Whether we live in wealth and security or whether we live in poverty and in a time of war, there is a personal crisis that stands just around the corner. God will arraign us before the bar of his justice, and he will judge every one of us by every act we have done, every action we've left undone, every thought that we've ever had, and every word we've ever spoken. The whole of our lives will be thoroughly examined, carefully, meticulously, examining everything in detail. Isaiah was right. Our sins are as scarlet. They stand out. They can't be hidden before God. Now, with that as a background, that the sins of people have been examined and are found wanting, we come to chapter 6. Isaiah 6 begins with the words, In the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah has been called King Azariah. That's what he is named in 2 Kings 15, verse 1. He'd been a relatively good king, and according to 2 Kings 15, verse 3, he had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But the Bible also tells us that he did not remove the high places. Now, the high places were those places either dedicated to idols or those places in which unauthorized sacrifices were being made. For whatever reason, I mean, perhaps he feared the reaction of the people. Uzziah decided he wouldn't deal with that problem. Nonetheless, God had blessed the reign of Uzziah. His reign was marked by military success, that is, the nation was secure. It was also marked by a time of lengthy prosperity. But about 740 BC, 
Uzziah died, and his death wouldn't have come at a more complicated time. Assyria, a great power to the east, was on the rise, and furthermore, Assyria looked hungry for conquest and were clearly chafing to create a large Middle Eastern empire that enveloped all lands around them. And furthermore, Assyria had a policy that the Middle East had never seen before. When they conquered a nation, Assyria would relocate the entire population somewhere else. To the Jews, that would mean that they would be moved from the promised land, and that was a real threat. And so just when Judah needed stable and wise leadership the most, Uzziah died. Clearly, the nation of Judah needed a new savior. And so that's the background. A relatively godly king reigning over an increasingly godless nation at a time when a crisis was looming. Look, we don't need Uzziah to die right now, but he did. And that sets the stage for Isaiah 6. So let's continue to read. Isaiah 6, 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You have to think of Isaiah had come to the temple to worship. And in the theology of ancient Israel, the temple was a symbol of God's presence among his people. It was the place where God had chosen to put his footstool. This was the only place where sacrifices were supposed to be offered, and this was the place where God would make his presence known. And as Isaiah is worshiping suddenly, and we're not told how, but he sees up into the throne room of God, the great God himself with, with a train of his kingly robe falling down to the earth and filling the temple. And the contrast is stark. On the one hand, the earthly king was already dead or lay dying, And on the other hand, the eternal king who forever reigns was living. He's the real king. He he never dies. All of us need that vision. We need it badly. See, we live in a day in which the arm of the flesh, the ability of human beings are the source of our confidence. But like the idols Isaiah warns us about, human beings, even the good and righteous ones, well, they die. It was the late René Lévesque, the Quebec politician who advocated Quebec sovereignty, He once said, the graveyard is filled with irreplaceable people. But the eternal throne room, well, that has no graveyard. For the one who is seated there, as Hebrews 7 verse 25 reminds us, he always lives. Yep, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the eternal king on his eternal throne. So let's keep reading, verses 2 and 3. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, who are these seraphim? The seraphim are angelic beings. The word seraphim means the burning ones. They're living, sentient flames of fire. Hebrews 1 verse 7 says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, this image of burning angels gives us a sense that they can't be approached by human beings. To do so means that we will be scorched, stand far off, stand in amazement as these beings carry out the work of God. Isaiah said that these seraphim are flying and giving the sense of constant motion, always ready to carry out God's assignment. One additional point here, and it seems important. In Revelation 5, verse 11, we're told of myriads and myriads of angels before the throne, meaning their number is exceedingly great, millions upon millions of them. 
But here in Isaiah, Isaiah noticed that even while they're flying, four of their wings were used to cover their feet and their faces. In essence, in spite of their brilliance, these burning ones are covering their own faces from the brilliance of divine glory. And then Isaiah hears their voices and they're crying three times, holy, then holy, and then again, holy. The thrice holy is a superlative. He is holy unlike anything else. He's separated from the creation. There is in him an incomparable holiness. It's not that the angels are glorious and he is more so. I mean, if we think that we've, we've completely misunderstood. He, the one on the throne, is unlike the angels in every way. His being separates him from everything else. So think of it this way. Human beings learn to a large degree by comparison. I mean, whether we're learning about trees or or birds or animals or mathematical equations, we compare what we now know to what we're learning, understanding the similarities of properties along with the differences of the thing under investigation. Not so with God. Nothing but nothing compares with him. He's unlike all other things, and thus, we're left only with the testimony of the seraphim. He is holy. He's separated from all other things. But, of course, the seraphim are not done. They say the earth is filled with his glory. It is? Oh, yes, it is. It was Elizabeth Browning who wrote wonderful words. She said, Earth's crammed with heaven, in every common bush a fire with God, and only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unawares. Indeed, they do. That was what Isaiah saw in the temple against the backdrop of the death of Uzziah and the rise of Assyria. He saw what the unbelieving and the blind eyes of the idolaters could not see. The earth, the place where we live and breathe, where we work and make love and have families and grow old, the place where we worry and fret, the place where we fight and we argue, this place, this place is filled with the glory of God. Ah, yes the vision of the glory of God. At year's end, we can't help but reflect on the partnership of so many across Canada that make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Particularly the important role our monthly partners play in providing consistent, reliable, foundational support for every resource Back to the Bible Canada has to offer. Recently, Jane wrote these words of encouragement. As monthly partners, my husband and I count it a great privilege to financially support Back to the Bible Canada. It's just a small but important way for us to partner in the gospel. Through listening to Dr. John's podcasts, we are challenged to know the Bible and prioritize our relationship with our Savior. Jane, your commitment to Bible teaching means so much. Perhaps as we look to a new year, others might join with Jane as a partner in the gospel by becoming a monthly partner. All you need to do is call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Chief reason why human beings live in great spiritual darkness. The chief reason human beings cheat and and lie and fornicate and and slander others is we can't see the glory of God. Instead, our eyes are shrouded. Our thoughts and actions betray we know nothing at all about the world we inhabit. 
It is this darkness in our hearts that makes us so desperately lost, so desperately in need of salvation. For if God doesn't break in and step into this darkness, we're going to stumble into eternity and we're going to stand before the great judgment seat and be utterly and eternally lost. That's the message of Isaiah. But as we also know, this is the message of Christmas. The coming of Jesus is intended to open her eyes to see the glory of God. But let's get back to Isaiah in the temple. He's come to worship and suddenly the veil between the throne room of God and the familiar scenes of the temple are removed. He is found gazing at the throne itself. I know, I know, some of us are going to ask, well, how is that even possible? That's because as many of us know, 1 John 4 verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. Yeah, it is true. For one, God is spirit. He can't be discerned by the natural eye. Go to Revelation chapter 4, and and it's interesting because you find that John describes the throne room. He describes the throne. He describes the angels that surround it, but the one seated on the throne, he doesn't describe that. No one has ever seen God. Well, then how can Isaiah say, I saw the Lord? The answer to that question is fascinating. Listen to John 12 verse 41. John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, John here is referring in his to Jesus, who is fully God and yet comes to us clothed in the robe of humanity. That is, Jesus makes it possible to look at God and live. He makes it possible to look at God and finally see. That is the message of Christmas. Now, of course, in Isaiah, what Isaiah saw was the glorified Jesus, so mighty that it overwhelmed him, very much like what happened to the apostle John when he was on the island of Patmos. John said that when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet as though dead. And and yet Jesus, who is himself fully the one true God, along with the Father and the Spirit, has made God known. He has shown God, and yet we have lived. So let's continue to read Isaiah 6, verses 4 to 5. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I wonder if you're surprised by the prophet's words. As he experiences the shaking of the temple, And as it is filled with holiness, as the seraphim are flying all around, their wings, they're burning. And as the awesome weight of the eternal one who sits on the throne settles in on the prophet, we find him crying out in despair. I am, he shouts, overcome with my deep and horrifying images of my own sinfulness. My blackened soul is far worse than I had ever imagined. You know, people who live with sin are comfortable with sin who make excuses for their sin and who rename sin, infusing it with other names such as, you know, mistakes and I'm simply human. People who live in sin are blind. I mean, the last thing they think they are are sinners. They delight in their own righteousness. They explain away their transgressions and they say, I'm no worse than the next person. I'm sure that when God judges me, he's going to see that I'm doing the very best that I can. But tear away our blanket of darkness and transport us into the presence of holiness, and our subtle ease is going to vanish, and we will be shocked by our own wickedness. Show me a person who is far from God, and I'm going to show you a person who thinks they're morally fine. 
But show me a person who has seen the Lord of hosts, and they're going to respond as Isaiah does. Woe is me. I'm filled with wretchedness. I'm far worse than I had ever allowed myself to imagine. And then Isaiah, who will be called by God to prophesy to his nation, comes to another conclusion. Yeah, he has known that his nation was, in his words, a sinful nation, weighed down, he said, with iniquity. But now in the presence of God himself, he comes to a jarring conclusion that his nation is far worse than he had imagined. Not only was he undone, but he lived among a people who were also undone. Again, we need to pause here and reflect. See, I know of people who are more than happy to condemn others, to act as a prophet pointing out the sins of others. But very few are so bold as to declare their own sins and condemn their own sins with the same fervor in which they condemn the sins of others. See, it's very natural, fallen part of all of us, that we excuse ourselves while we condemn others. But Isaiah, in preparation for a lifetime of ministry, is made to see that he and the sinful nation are equally sinful. And it is this that makes the Christian faith, quite frankly, different from what people expect. If Christians are being truly and fully Christian, they point out that their own sins are equal to the sins of those around them. We're not only appalled by the sins of others, we're equally appalled by our own sins. We are all undone before a holy God. Now, before we go on, would you notice that Isaiah draws special attention to his lips? He says his lips are unclean. I mean, why mention his lips? I suppose it's because God has called him to be a preacher, and prophets and preachers make a living by speaking, and that might be it. But it might also be that the lips, as James would later say, that it is from our mouths that all of our wickedness flows. And so Isaiah, having seen the Lord, now knows he is no different from anyone else. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, the burning coal is taken from the altar. That's very important because this is the altar where sacrifices were offered that could atone for sins. The coals on the altar were used to consume the sacrifice, making the atonement holy. And we're reminded that Jesus is the fulfillment of the First Testament altar. He was sacrificed as an atoning for our sins. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to the place of sacrifice, and he was offered up for us. Without an atoning for our sins, there is no forgiveness for our sins. But notice in this passage, the sacrifice has to touch Isaiah's lips. That is, it has to be applied personally to him. His lips needed not just forgiveness. Yeah, he needed that, but he also needed to be cleansed. And there in the temple, before the presence of holiness, Isaiah the prophet finally sees his sin and finally experiences God's forgiveness. Again, think of Christmas. Jesus came for that very reason, to purge away the sins of all who confess their sins and plead with him, have mercy on me, Jesus, I am a sinner. Cleanse me of my sin, for without you I'm lost. And with that comes Isaiah's call. Let's read verses 8 to 10. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. 
Now, for the first time in this passage, the God who is on the throne speaks. I have a message for the human race, and Isaiah says, If you're willing, then send me. I am willing to go and speak on your behalf. And then God lets Isaiah know his mission. He is sending him to speak to a people who are not going to listen. Eventually, they would hear him enough never to pay attention to him again. Well, now, Isaiah is shocked. He wants to know how long Judah is going to remain unresponsive. Listen carefully to God's response, Isaiah 6, 11 to 13. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. I hope you don't miss the message of hope. The very last sentence read, the holy seed is a stump. That is, the whole tree is going to be burned down. There's only going to be a a stump that's left. That, said God, is going to be the future of Judah. The majority is going to reject the salvation that God offers. Indeed, your preaching, Isaiah, is going to make their hearts harder than they had been before. But a stump is going to remain. Christmas is the story of the stump. Listen to John 1 verse 11. He, that is Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Like Isaiah, they rejected Jesus. That's because Jesus will always be far too radical for the world to accept. But there will be those who in rejoicing will come to him. It's a promise. There will be those who will be saved. God has given his word. John, I think it's interesting that God's glory really reveals the darkness in the place that we live this earth and in our hearts and our lives. Ah, Wow, that's very well said. I know this, uh, that before I met Christ, I wasn't really aware of how sinful I was. And even when I first met the Lord, um, I, you know, Ben, I I looked at a few things in my life. I thought, the Lord needs to clean those up. Uh, And then the more I began to grow in Christ and see Christ more clearly and see the glory of God, uh, I began to, you know, just panic at this sense of how deeply sinful I was. I was growing in my awareness of my sinfulness. And as I think about it now, I was growing in my awareness of God. I mean, the greater we see God's light, the more we see that everything outside of him looks sinful. You know, God's light uh, also highlights the darkness. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. John 1.12 reads, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, this verse expresses the heart and mission of Back to the Bible Canada. We teach the Bible, but for a purpose, that those who hear might receive and believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the intention of every program, every word. Whether on radio, podcast, mobile application, Truth and Life magazine, Truth and Life Today, or our young adult ministry in doubt or the many who tune in to listen to Laugh Again. Every program and resource serves to deliver God's Word so that those who hear would be saved. Thank you for embracing and supporting this mission. Your gifts make all that is done through Back to the Bible Canada possible. 
And please consider supporting the ongoing ministries of Back to the Bible Canada as we strive to reach our December year-end goal of $465,000. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.